here. Uh, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word. You can turn to, to Ephesians. Uh, you've guessed it. Uh, we're going to be in the final section there in Ephesians chapter 6. And so you can find your way there. And the title of today's message, in case you want to find it online or, or afterwards, is uh, In the Army Now, The Battle of the Believer. Or I guess you could just look up Ephesians 6, 10 through uh, 24, either way, to make you easy to find it. But listen, this is a well-known section of Scripture. And so as, as we think about what God is saying, I want you to think about what God is saying to you this morning. Uh, you may have, if you've been to church for any number of years or, or whatever, uh, like I said, I mean, this is, this is famous, talking about all these things. And don't worry, I will not neglect talking about each individual piece Although, as we go through this section, I do not want to actually focus there. I have a bigger picture for you, okay? So, uh, as we jump into God's Word, let's pray, and, and we'll just we'll jump in here. God, our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your provision. We thank You that as we look at this text, You have given us all that we need. Help us then, therefore, as we're going to see, to be strong, to fight well to put on the armor that you have provided, to utilize the tools that you have given to us. God, it is by your grace we are saved, as we talked about earlier today, and as we recognize now before we look at your scriptures, it is only by your power, Father. And so help us to be reminded afresh of what we are called to do, uh, who we are called to battle against, how we do that battle, and by whose strength we battle in. It is for your namesake, for your glory, for your kingdom that we make this plea. And all God's people said, amen. And so the first thing I want to talk about here is what Paul does, and, and he gives us a final plea. Let's read the text, Ephesians 6, 10-11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is his final plea. This is how he ends his uh, letter. I almost said book, but to the Ephesians, it's a letter. So this is how he ends his letter. And what he's saying is here is, wake up. All these things that he's told us before are absolutely true, but what he's saying here is we need to be awake. We need to stand strong. That's what he says here. Finally, be strong in the Lord, and we're supposed to do this so that we can fight. Those are the two subpoints there if you're a note taker. So this final plea is, finally, after all these things we've covered, after you are aware that you are saved by grace through faith, after you are aware that you have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, after you are aware that it is by this grace that you have been, remember, predestined and then called, and then now you're currently being transformed and there is a future glory, as you are aware that, that you are called out of such deep depravity and darkness as the Gentiles still walk and you've been given a newness of life, as you are aware, mothers and fathers children, right, of what our roles are, what our responsibilities are, as he's told us as a church body, how to love one another, how to deal with one another. Finally, after all these things, he says, now it's time to fight. Now it's time to take all that theology and put it into practical practice. All of those things are culminating here. And think about where Paul is. We've got to remember the context of this. Paul is in prison. Paul is under house arrest. Paul very shortly is going to be tried under the Roman government and found guilty. Paul is going to perish. 
And as we see here in the text, Paul is not throwing in the towel. And that's a charge to you. I know things look bleak, Christian. I know you see things on the horizon, and, you, and, you, and we have these conversations. I have them with you all the time. I'm sure you guys have them with one another. If you're not in person, then on things like Facebook or social media or on the news cycles that you watch or in your own families, and we see the things on the horizon, we say, man, this sure looks bleak. This sure looks like, in our opinion, these end of days, these end times, these things that seem to be culminating. We see Matthew being fulfilled where there's wars and rumors of wars and sickness and pestilence and these are the beginning of birth things. We see these things and we look at these things and we can be really discouraged. But what Paul is telling us here is, no, 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 no. The final plea is fight. The final plea is stand and be strong. Look what he says here. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. It's okay that we are weak. It's okay that we are often downtrodden. It's okay that we are often tempted. It's okay that we are tried because the strength isn't our own. Paul is communicating something that Jesus did before. He said, we need to be in him. He is the vine. We are the branches. Take his yoke upon him. Learn from him. In our weakness, he is shown to be strong. And so he tells us, be strong and fight. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. John Chrysostom has this quote for us. He says, if, if we were aware of a serpent nestling by our bed, we would take the trouble to kill him. But when the devil nestles, nestles in our souls, we fancy that we take no harm, but lie at our ease. And the reason is that we do not see him with the eyes of our body. And yet this is why we should rouse ourselves even more. Be alert, for against an enemy who no one can perceive, one may easily be on guard, or on an enemy who one can perceive, one might easily be on guard, but one that cannot be seen. If we are not continually in arms, we will not easily escape. You see, what Paul is saying here in the text is, do not neglect the things that you have heard. We are at the end of a book. It's easy for people like me or people like you to kind of, you know, dust ourselves off, say, hey, we're at the end of this, we're moving on to the next section here. Do not let that be said of you. Do not forget what you have read in Ephesians. Continue to go through Ephesians, just as you do your own Bible studies. Be a doer of the word and not a mere hearer. Continue to remember these things and place them on yourself. Remind them in your prayers. Lift one another up, as we're going to see here in just a little bit. But his final plea is to stand strong. There's subpoints of his final plea. There's three of them. And we're going to cover those now as we look at the rest of the text. So if you can follow with me. At verse 11, the second half of that, stand against the schemes of the devil. And then verse 12, uh, beginning, if you can follow along, says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of, the evil, of evil in the heavenly places. What he's telling us here is the believer's adversary. He's being very specific in here, and we need to remember this. There are so many things that divide us. We are divided by politics. We are divided by doctrine. We are divided by 
socioeconomic class we are divided by, and then you fill in the blank, right? There are so many things that divide us, but it ought not be so with the body of Christ. We are his bride. He says the real enemy is the devil and demonic forces. Look at what he says here in the text. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. In, in a King James Version, I think it's the wiles of the devil. You see, the devil is a crafty creature. But also, he's a creature. He's not equal with God. There, there's the, there's a, a meme or a gif or something. I, I don't know what you call it. It's a, it's a screenshot image that I see on my Facebook feed sometimes. Uh, I'm not on there often, but I see it. And it's this picture of Jesus arm, re- arm wrestling Satan, and so it's supposed to be a picture of Jesus and Satan and their arm wrestling, and I think to myself, that's the stupidest, that's, the, that's a terrible theological picture. It, Loki said it best in the Avengers movie, uh, when he said, an ant has no quarrel with a boot, and the answer is, yeah, and Satan has no quarrel with God, because it's not an arm wrestle match, it is literally an ant versus a boot, There's, it's done, it's over. So we need to understand that, but we also need to understand that Satan is, and his demonic forces are far more powerful than we are. And so let's not get too cocky here, but it says here, stand against the schemes of the devil. He is wily. He is old. He has been around before the complete formation of the world. Now, we don't know about all the time of those kind of things and when he was made and when he fell and all those kind of things, but what we do know is he was there in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. And so sometime before that time, he fell and he turned against God. And in the same schemes he used, so he has had, I don't know how old you are, but this is 2022. So he has had 2022, but that's just to Jesus. So from there on back to whenever, if you're old earth, young earth, whatever, you better be a 24-hour creationist because that's scripture. But whatever you are in there, he's had that long to study humanity as a whole. And also, rest assured, however old you are, he's had that long to watch you. And what does it say about him? It talks about him as a, as a roaring lion. It talks about him as a serpent. It talks about him as, as, as a wolf. It talks about him as the adversary, as the accuser, as the destroyer. There are so many names that it gives to Satan throughout Scripture. He is wily. He has schemes. And he spends all of his days, because he never sleeps, he never needs to eat. Remember, he's a spiritual creature. He spends all of his time scheming in ways to captivate, to destroy, to ruin, to kill anything that bears the image of God. And especially those who have been redeemed by Christ. And so he tells us that we wrestle look at verse 12 there with you we wrestle so this isn't even something that's kind of like you know the the war in ukraine for us we think about that we care about that we we pray about that other than what the government says the gas pumps right it doesn't affect any of us in our normal day-to-day lives however this is a different kind of battle this is a face to face rest assured that In this very room, at this very moment, there are satanic influences that are listening to this sermon and that are upset that it's being preached and that will seek to wipe it from your minds so that they can confuse you and make you battle against the wrong things, which is one another when it says here we are wrestling not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there is one-third of the angelic hosts that have followed after Satan. So Satan is like the chief commander. He's the general, if you will, or the, the POTUS, or the commander, or whatever, of all of this demon horde, and all of them are set to destroy you. This is a great sermon for Memorial Day weekend. And so Paul makes it very clear. He says, listen, this is my final plea because you need to understand your adversary. And so uh, Bernard of Shorelevoye says this, Do not think that because you have fled from the fight, you have escaped from the hands of the enemy. The adversary overtakes you with more pleasure when flying than he resists you when combating and strikes more boldly at your back than he attacks face to face. I don't know if you've ever read the book, Pilgrim's Progress. As we talk about the armor, I'm going to bring this up maybe again. But in the book, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the pilgrim, as he was saying when he was fighting Apollyon in the battle, in the, in the valley there, that he was thinking about turning back. But because he had no armor at his back, he thought it best to face his opponent face to face. And in lots of movies, isn't it, it's no... The Bible's everywhere. You just need to have your eyes open to that. How many movies have you watched where the bad guy, somebody's running away, and the bad guy says something like, oh, I love it when they run. That's scripture, man. Where do, you, where do you think that kind of stuff comes from? People don't just invent that. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. They have to steal from somewhere, and they're going to steal from the greatest story ever told most of the time. And so that's what Bernard says. But also uh, Thomas Kemp's uh, puts it this way. The devil does not sleep, nor in his flesh yet dead. Therefore, you must never cease your preparation for battle, because on the right and on the left are enemies who never rest. That is the spiritual reality Paul is trying to tell you about this morning. And we forget this. We forget this because we get lulled by our own selfishness, our own sin, and also just the world and other, other good, godly responsibilities, right? You want to be a good husband, and so you want to provide for and take care of and, uh, and a good father. Or you want to be a good mother, and so you want to provide for and take care of. And these things can, can push out the idea of the spiritual warfare that's happening around us all the time. The reality is that as soon as this message is done, even the reality is that even right now, some of you are being bombarded with thoughts. And you want to listen to the sermon, but that Satan wants to so keep your attention on something else that even something I just said a minute ago is going to take you down a mental rabbit trail, and then you're going to check back in, and you're going to miss something. Now, I'm not the world's best preacher. It's probably okay for you to miss something that I say. But pay attention to God's word. Because the spiritual reality is there is an adversary. The next section that we go through here is 13 through 17. Therefore, and this is everybody's favorite section, right? And we love to talk. So we're going to go through this too. But therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Which is today, by the way. Uh, having done all to stand firm. So how much should you do all of that to stand firm? Stand, therefore. Are you noticing a pattern with stand? You know, there's a psalm that talks about uh, uh, the, the person who does not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Uh, that's a tie-in. But, so stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, 
having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So this full armor, that's what we've been given. This is the believer's armor. So if you're a note taker, that's the next one there. This is the believer's armor. Two things you need to see here. One, if you do not yet know Christ, you are in a war with no weapons. That is a scary place to be. Secondly, if you are a Christian, you have been outfitted with the best kind of modern technology that we have available. It's hard for us to picture this or to think through this because right now, if you took a, uh, a longsword into the fight of Ukraine, you would be massacred. However, if you took a mech suit with laser-guided Tony Stark homing missiles into that war, you would dominate. And so what Scripture is talking about here is equal modern warfare technology, that what we have been given is not substandard to fight the enemy with, It's not that we need an AK-47, but God has given us a sword. No, he has given us everything we need, and this is the technology that they had at the day. And so as we talk about this, we have to think about what they're for, this belt of truth. Now remember, Paul's in prison. He is often chained to a Roman soldier. So he, in Rome, what do you think he's seeing all the time? Paul's been seeing some guy, at least dressed in some of this stuff, every single day. They take shifts, right? It's like Wiley Coyote or Willie the Wolf or whatever his name is, the two sheepdogs that punch in every day. Hey, Bob. Hi, Steve. You know, and then they like switch spots or whatever, right? So the belt of truth. Why does he list that first? Because if you aren't practicing the truth, then you are like Satan. Satan is the father of lies. We have to know, recognize, and understand the truth to be able to have the foundation of any of these things. And by the way, did Jesus not say that he is the way and the truth? And so if you don't know Christ, then that's it. So the belt of truth is first, it is the foundation. Also, if you think about it, the end is the sword of the Spirit. Now we're going to talk about that too. I'm not going to rob from you, but where do you keep your sword? It has to be attached to the belt, just like a holster of a pistol or anything else like that. It has to have something to hang on. And so it is important that we use the Word of God both in the Spirit but also in truth. It has to be founded in and grounded in truth. The next thing there is the blessed breastplate of righteousness. What is a breastplate do? Or modern day, right? A ballistic jacket or a ballistic vest. What do those do? They protect your vital organs, right? Of which is the first and foremost is the cardia, the heart, right? The breastplate of righteousness is Christ's righteousness covering us. Now, like I just said, in the Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim said, hey, because there's nothing at my back, I'm, I'm not going to... That's, that's not how Roman stuff was. They had plates in both the front and the back, just like we do modern flak jackets. You have, you have back plates, you have front plates. But the point here is, is this is protecting your heart. And this righteousness is not... Your righteousness is a righteousness that has been given to you, right? This is Christ's righteousness that has been given to your account. It's been attributed to you. And it is only by things like faith. What did they say about Abraham? By his faith, it was appointed to him as righteousness. And so it wasn't that Abraham 
earned it. It was that he had faith in another. He had faith in the other, the great I am. And so it's the same with us, that we have this belt of truth, which is rightness, and then we have the righteousness of Christ protecting us from any of these other things. And then you have next here the gospel of peace, these these first century cleats is what they were like. Uh, we think of, of sandals, and we often picture sandals. But on their, on their shoes, they would have nails driven through the, the other way or, or little studs driven through the other way because they understood the same thing we understand today, that when you need grip and you need traction, you have to have some kind of a, a, a thing to keep your foot from slipping. It's the whole idea of this. Take heed lest your foot slip, right? Lest you fall. And so the shoes of the gospel of peace are not only what we should be bringing, how beautiful are the feet of those who are bringing this gospel of good news, uh, but also it is by the means that we transport ourselves. It is by the means that we are able to move at all because it is the gospel that brings life. And outside of that, we're just simply dead. And when you are dead, the vultures and the wolves, they have their way with you because there is no defense. But when you are made alive, you are now given the spirit and you have now mobility and the ability to defend yourself, which brings us to a shield of faith. Now, there was a couple different kind of shields during this time. There's one that was, uh, I don't know the names of them because I didn't do the research. I apologize for that. You can Google it. I'm sure you can find it. But there's one that is, is just a, a single kind of round one. And, and they would have a couple different shapes, but they're mainly about the size of the forearm in a circumference like that. And so you, you, it's, a, it's a single uh, thing. But the, the, the Roman soldiers, what they would have, they would have these big shields. Not quite the size of a door, okay? But like, think of that. And, and they would be wood, and then they would be bound with a thick leather, and then they would often uh, have some kind of a, a lead wrapping around that to, to keep everything together and focus together. And the whole point of having multiple layers in this big shield, and, and by the way, and this is just a fun tidbit too, um, very, very uh, reminiscent of church life, it should be. These shields were built in such a way as on the outside edges to have special uh, catches, basically, so that when Roman soldiers stood in a line, they could actually interlock their shields and almost become as a human wall. And so, therefore, the more Roman soldiers you had holding shields up together, the harder it was to actually penetrate to the ranks behind. I don't know if there's a lesson for the church there. I think maybe, right? Uh, but, but I'll leave that to you. And so this shield that they are given has multiple layers in it, and the point of these shields is, as we see from the text, of these flaming darts that would be shot at them. In all circumstances. So how often do you need this shield of faith? All the time. Which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You see, so we're both wrestling an opponent face to face, hands on, all the time. And we're also being sniped at. With flaming darts. And so they would dip the tips of these arrows in pitch or in some kind of flammable substance. They would light them. And then what they would do is not only would you get struck by the projectile, but then also it would do damage to your equipment because it's, it's now being caught on fire from time to time. The darts that are slung at you are things like this. You screwed up again. 
You should just forget this whole Jesus thing. Look at your past. Look at your life. You, you think that he loves you? The flaming darts are meant to penetrate the small areas of our armor. You use swords for the big hacking. You use axes for the smashing or clubs for the denting. You use arrows to find those sweet spots and really let them in there. You have to have the shield of faith. And so they were wrapped. There was wood and then they were wrapped with leather. And, and, and oftentimes what they would do before they went out is they would, they would dunk them or douse them. And the whole point was is so that when a flaming dart hit that, it would be extinguished. And if you've ever watched any of these movies and you've seen these great scenes where they, their, their shield is all full of these arrows and then they take their sword and they're like, Rah! and they you know, scrape off all the, all the arrows before they go in. Have that image in your mind. The shield of faith caught those arrows so you don't. And then he says to take on this helmet of salvation. This is to have our minds renewed is to cover our heads. Just like in modern warfare, uh, without the head, the body does not work well. Christ is the head of the church. We are his body. And so we need this helmet of salvation to be over us, to have our minds continuously renewed. And that is why I believe he puts the helmet of salvation right before the sword of the Spirit, because if it is not in our heads, it can never be in our hearts. And therefore, it can never move to our hands as he equivocates, and, and not equivocates, as, as he equates here the sword with the living word of God. And so I want you to see this whole armor set that he gives us. Each piece represents something. And you can picture Paul as he's sitting at his desk writing to the Ephesians as they would also see these Roman soldiers because they're part of this Roman empire. So he's sitting chained to one of these guards and he's looking at their garb, watching them march up and down as shows a force within the city or just being on guard around the city. And they're having these things on and he's thinking, man, this is exactly like what we're facing and an enemy we can't see with armor that we can't see, but it is the best armor because whose armor is it? It's God's armor. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, which he has given to you, which ends with the sword of the spirit because the sword of the spirit never, never, ever fails. It is always sharp. In fact, Scripture said it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to go between even spirit and soul, bones and marrow. It is scalpel-like sharp, which is why, if we handle it correctly, we often cut ourselves, don't we? And we should. But you know what? When you get cut, you have a scar, and then that scar helps you to be tougher for the next time. And so as we learn how to handle the sword, we can then handle it like our fearless leader Christ, who was 40 days in the wilderness and besieged and waging war and yet came back with the sword every single time. And also rest assured, our enemy knows how to use a sword as well, doesn't he? I guess not really a sword, more like a fork, because that's what his tongue is like. But he uses a fork towards us, and he twists Scripture. 
And so he will quote some scripture, but not the full length of it. So we ought to be well aware of this belt of truth because that's what our sword hangs on. We ought to have the helmet of salvation that continues to renew our minds. But I have this wonderful quote that I want to read to you from William Gurnell, who, by the way, is, is a, a, a wonderful hymn writer. And so you can look him up and see some of your favorite hymns may have been written by this, uh, this gentleman. But here's what he says about Christian armor. He said, the armor decays two ways. Either by violent battery when the Christian is overcome by temptation to sin, or else by neglecting to furbish and scour it with the use of those means which are as oil to keep it clean and bright. I know we're on the edge of a great tragedy, but when you talk about caring for your weaponry, if you don't know, I'm about to tell you, When you're done shooting a firearm, when you're done using a saber, a sword, you oil it. You clean it. You have to, excuse me for the gore here, but in a hand-to-hand combat situation, at the end of the battle, what they never show you is all the cleanup time. You have to scrub and remove the carnage from your blade. Otherwise, it will rust. There are stories of people who neglected their weaponry and sheathed it with all of that on there, forgot about it, or left it out in the weather, and they went to retrieve it, and it was rusted to their scabbard, and it cost them their lives. And so as William says here, the Christian armor decays in two ways. Either because you are so battle-torn, Or it decays because you're not using it. It is my fear that in today's world, there are more Christians in America that their armor is decaying not because of battle, but because of complacency. So thirdly, in verses 18 through 20, praying at all times in the Spirit. Now, I want you to see if you can also see uh, some, some repeats in this section of text too. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that the words be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So what he tells us here is this is how we attack. He told us about our adversary. He told us about our armor. He now tells you this is how you're supposed to attack. I don't know if you saw it. I'm going to make it really plain for you. How's that? And so I'm just going to ask this question, how's your prayer life? That question, I hope, is offensive to you. Because I don't care if you pray every day, regularly at a certain time, or if that question just revealed in your own heart that you, if you're honest, you rarely pray. The text says the bar is so high, none of us can meet it. 
And all of us, as we are to be like Christ, ought to be like Christ here. It says he often would withdraw from others, even those who he loved, and he would go off by himself and he would pray. And you know why that is? Because Jesus knew what Paul knows, what Paul is telling us, that there is a spiritual battle that can only be fought by spiritual means. He said, I I do not box as though beating the air. Although it seems like as Christians, that's the only way we battle. Because we really never actually go to the throne of grace. Teresa of Avila, or Avil. Souls without the exercise of prayer are like a body that has the palsy, or that is lame. And though it has feet and hands, it cannot use them. Or John Wesley, bear up the hands that hang down by faith and prayer, support the tottering knee, reprove, encourage, storm the throne of grace, and persevere therein, and mercy will come down. You see, it's not really rocket science what he says here. He says, pray, pray always, pray in the Spirit, keep Praying, pray for all the saints. Pray for the gospel to go forward boldly. You see, when is the last time that you have prayed against the principalities and the powers? So often we pray things like, God, please bless this food to my body. And that's not wrong. But how often do you actually wrestle with the devil through prayer? How often do we come before the mercy seat with nothing in our hands to bring, and just cry out to he who sits on it, who is king? How often do we just come before him in fervency? Do you know there used to be a thing in churches called prayer meetings? There used to be prayer evenings, there used to be prayer services, that the whole thing was just simply prayer? Did you know that we had a fasting and prayer time here at this church? You know how many people came to that? The benefit of the doubt, I I know that I'm going to choose to believe that you were praying at your house while I was praying here. He ends with a faithful promise, though. He gives us a final plea. And it's a big one. He tells us about the adversary. He tells us about the armor. He tells us how to attack. And then he gives us this wonderful, beautiful promise in the text in verses 21 through 24. Really in verses 23. So I'm going to have you guys in the back. You're going to go ahead and move to 23. And you who have your Bibles open, you can let your eyes fall to 23. He says, uh, well, he says in, in, in 21, I have, I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, that, and here's a, that he may encourage your hearts. So this is an encouragement to us. And he says in 23, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What's the first word he gives there in verse 23? Peace. What is the opposite of war? Peace. And in the text, this is a deeper kind of peace. This is the idea of shalom, which means a sense of wholeness and completeness. And Jesus talked about a peace that surpasses understanding. This is not only, and if you remember Ephesians as a whole, not only vertical peace, but a horizontal peace. And 
a spiritual peace. Peace be to the brothers, those brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, and love with faith. And he says, from who? From God, who is what now? Our Father. Why? Because although we were dead in sins, before we chose him, he chose us and he adopted us and gave us an inheritance, all the spiritual blessings. So our Father and the Lord, which is a term for king, which means it is not Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. There is no yin-yang. There is no battle. Jesus is Lord. He is always Lord. Was Lord is Lord, will be Lord. There is no uh, maybes about it. Satan has no chance. The end has been written. And so he says, grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ with all love, incorruptible. What does incorruptible mean? It cannot change. It cannot degrade. It cannot fail. It cannot falter. So what Paul is saying here at the end with this final and faithful promise is yours is peace in Christ Jesus. Yours is the love of the Father. Yours is life everlasting. Yours is the victory. And so that's why he ends this section with saying, so therefore be strong. Therefore fight. Therefore pray. Therefore put on this armor. Therefore understand who your uh, adversary is. Understand the armor that he's given you. Understand your modes of attack. And then understand that yours is the victory. And so have no fear. There are no works of power, dearly beloved, without the trials of temptations. There is no faith without proof. No consent without a, no contest without a foe. No victory without conflict. This life is Uh, This life of ours is in the midst of snares, in the midst of battles. If we do not wish to be deceived, we must watch. If we want to overcome, we must fight. And the best news is we fight knowing that that victory has already been won on the cross by Christ. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you. We love you that you have given us this victory. And we thank you for this text this morning that has reminded us of what you have called us to do, who you have called us to be, how you have called us to fight. We thank you that you are finishing up this book of Ephesians with a promise of who you are and what you've done in us, through us, to us. And we ask that you would continue to help us come before you and stand and fight, for you are worthy. You are worthy, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Let's stand.